thank you so much for listening to another episode of CX Chronicles Podcast. I'm your host, Adrian Brady Chisana. Tune in each week as we listen to amazing customer-focused business leaders from across the world sharing their personal stories about their teams, tools, process, and feedback. Check us out at cxchronicles.com today or listen on iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. Today's episode is brought to you by Tidio, the only AI-powered customer experience software designed for small and medium-sized online businesses. Tidio takes the pressure off your support team. The software enables you to manage all of your communication channels in a single dashboard and uses artificial intelligence to sort your conversations and highlight customer questions that need an urgent response. Tidio helps you improve your response times by answering common questions with canned responses. The software's conversational AI can also answer four out of five customer questions in seconds, allowing your support agents to focus on complex problems. Tidio also helps you increase sales with personalized shopping experiences. The automated chatbots engage customers with product recommendations and discounts based on their behavior, leading to increased conversion rates. Maximize your support capacity without additional hiring costs. Try Tidio today. Visit Tidio.com backslash CXC and start using Tidio with an exclusive 20% discount or start with a free plan and upgrade later. Hey guys, are you looking for ways that you can improve your company's customer experience, customer success, and revenue operations? Then reach out to CX Chronicles. We created CXE after years of being practitioners ourselves, experiencing firsthand the challenges and opportunities of building and managing CXCS revenue operations team from the ground up at a scaling organization. Why work with CX Chronicles? Number one, you get executive level expertise and credibility from day one. We jump in and ramp up as quickly as you need us. Number two, you get actionable CTAs that will maximize your CX and CS ROI. We investigate and audit the economics of your existing CX and CS structure and determine how it can be optimized. And number three, check out our amazing CX and CS focused SaaS partners. We're working with Salesforce, HubSpot, Sturdy, Zendesk, Customer, Help Scout, Churn Zero, Freshworks, and more. Reach out to CXE today, guys. All right, guys. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of the CX Chronicles podcast. I'm super excited for today's show. We have Satandra Hoover joining us. Satandra, say hello to the CX Nation. Hi, everyone. How are you? So, guys, Satandra has a super cool story, and um, I'm, I'm really excited for her to share not only her journey with us today, but just to get her take on um, some of the things that she's seen uh, across her own customer-focused business leader journey. Um, Sandra, why don't you grab the microphone, spend a couple minutes uh, setting the stage for us. How, number one, how did you get into the type of work that you're um, doing today? And then number two, what were some of the stepping stones in your own career that kind of set you up to do the type of work that you're doing today? Absolutely. So I have a pretty atypical background, which makes it very fun. Uh, My father is a tropical botanist. So I grew up um, traveling with him all around the world to very remote locations um, in mostly tropical areas out in the middle of the mountains, visiting indigenous cultures um, and seeing reality on the ground very different from where I grew up in Western Massachusetts. And so that set a stage really for the rest of the path of my life. 
life. So I spent the first half of my career focused on disaster response and conflict management within humanitarian crises in over 60 countries. Um, so I lived all throughout the Middle East and all throughout Latin America, uh, really trying to understand how to drive social environmental impact um, by engaging communities through culture and engagement and empathy but really understanding where change needed to be implemented, but through that community engagement lens. Um, I did that for about a decade or so, loved the work that we were doing, and then really came to that realization of how much better could I do this work if I had strong business principles and foundations, um, and bringing a business profit first perspective into the work that I was doing. Um, so then I went and pursued my MBA in entrepreneurship and then went and spent about a decade working in corporate um, and mostly corporate 100 companies, just understanding how business is run, um, mostly in financial services with an underlying lens of understanding people and the impact of financial services on individuals and how that can be used to, to improve people's lives. Um, I left that in December and launched my own company early this year, which is really focused on integrating all of those together. So I do strategy and management consulting to drive effective change at the intersection of impact, inclusion, and profit. Um, and what essentially that means is being able to bring a customer first and people pers first perspective to drive effective change within organizations and society. That's amazing. So wait a minute, I have so many, so many follow-up questions. So number one, um, the the background, the the the, the, the you know having the experience that you had with being able to travel the world at an early age with your dad yeah little one incredible that's amazing because <laughs> i you, i mean i i say this to people all the time standard but like i don't think any education compares to travel right and you be able no. to go to different countries with different people and different languages and different food and different traditions and just all sorts of different culture like it's an amazing way to just to experience the world and to have such a thorough understanding of what what's truly out there. I think second thing, appreciation, appreciation for people, appreciation for differences, appreciation for how many different ways you can actually go about like so many different things. So I think that's incredible. Um, yeah. Number two, guys, selfishly, I told Sutandra um, a few weeks ago when we were when we were catching up, I told her. Um, I actually, I, I, it's funny. I joke, I joke and I tell people, I think part of why I ended up working with customers and part of why I personally got into customer experience and customer success leadership was my anthropology, my anthropology minor in college is because I was learning about people, learning about society, learning about all these different things that, 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 that really kind of go on. And, and, it, and it makes you really think about, I think people, um, differently. And then the other thing you said, empathy, right? You said empathy and, um, um, passion. Yeah, exactly. And I just think that like, for so many business leaders, um, I don't know that all business leaders have really great empathy skills. I think some business leaders are, you know, some, I, I put them into a few different buckets. Some are incredible at finance, some are incredible at selling or customer relations with people. Some of them are incredible technology and building product, right? Um, but I love, I love the background. Um, I do have to ask you though, what, what, what's your shortlist of, of all the countries that you've been able to see? What's, what are your, what are your, like your top three, just before we even jump into the, into the rest of the show? Oh, it's such a difficult question to answer. Um, 
My number one, and I would have to say just because of the amount of time that I have lived there, is Colombia. Um, so I have lived in Colombia for nearly a decade. Um, I speak fluent Colombian Spanish. Um, it's like my second home and basically have, you know, people that are family there. Um, the other two? Oh, it's a hard question. I know it's a hard question. Um. I would have to say my second country, just because of the experience that it was, would be Yemen. Um, I lived in Yemen at the very beginning of Arab Spring um, during the overthrow of the President Saleh um, and was there when the rebels were taking over and mortars are flying all over and um, good good stories for, you know, drinks and happy hour. Um, but <laughs> Yemen is an incredible country and it's like going back in the world 2000 years. And so just from that experience, I have to say Yemen. And the third one, I don't know, we're going to have to leave it as TBD. Um, <laughs> uh, I don't want to offend anyone, but I, I've lived in over 20 countries and it's just, you know, whether it's, you know, Paraguay or Brazil or Libya, Scotland, Indonesia, Philippines, right? They're all just such fascinating, incredible countries that bring such incredible perspectives. And, and to what you said, every single one of them has helped to form who I am today by, yeah. by living in those countries and those environments, learning some of the languages and, you know, Hungarian and Quechua and things like that. Um, it's, it's just really helped to inform my perspective and, and how I walk the world. I love it. I think that's amazing. I think it's just such a cool story. And not only that, it must have set you up um, so nicely. So the 10 years that you spent in the business world, give us a sense for, you mentioned uh, financial services and you mentioned spending time in a number of different companies. Um, number one, that must have been a major, a major standout, right? There's even, even, in, even in big businesses, you don't have people that lived in 20 countries. And that's, that's saying a lot if you think about it, because there are a lot of executives and there are a lot of leaders in large companies that do get to go move across the world and live in different offices and all that fun stuff. But, um, what, um, I'd, I'd love for, for you to just kind of, kind of give us a sense for, um, what were some of the different roles and what were some of the different focus areas that you were really kind of nestled into in the 10 years in the professional world or in the, in the corporate world? Yeah, absolutely. So most of my time, as I mentioned, was in financial services, so in insurance specifically. So I worked in both personal, commercial um, insurance across the board, you know, offering of services. Um, and I served in a variety of roles. Um, I did underwriting and marketing product finance claims for a very long time, you know, for for a long stint. Um, a bunch of different areas and then lived in lived and worked in different countries within them. And then I also worked in the education sector. Um, and so I did educational design specifically in the finance department um, for a while as well. Um, and and it very it, it is right. It was it was a very big transition going from living literally living in Yemen to two years later working for Liberty Mutual based in Boston with a headquarters of over five thousand people. That's um, a big difference. <laughs> That's a very big difference. Very big difference. Um, but I I think it's it's. It's so fascinating, right? To me, that's where that conversation of anthropology comes in, right? Bringing the perspective of how to 
to engage in different cultures, work in different companies, and looking at each company almost as if it's a country and understanding what those dynamics are at play in terms of how teams operate. But to me, the critical piece is at the end of the day, it's the customer, right? You need to understand how the customer thinks and how the customer operates and where that customer is and how the customer is transitioning um, to be able to provide them the necessary services you know, not just on a sales perspective, but on a servicing perspective and being able to address those client and service needs um, and really being able to 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 be there to listen and not just as as, you know, a corporate business individual. 100 percent. Couldn't agree more. And, and again, it's, it's, it's said so frequently, but literally customers are the lifeblood of AD business. And frankly, um, it's 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 one of the big reasons, as you know, with this show we're constantly trying to figure out how different folks, number one, how how they think about customers, how they think about the teams that serve customers. And then, and this teases it perfectly, uh, obviously we're always talking about the four pillars, right? The team and the tools and the process that people have said. Um, so Tandra, I'd love to jump into the first pillar of team. Um, sure. Spend a couple of minutes talking about, number one, some of the types of teams that you're actually working with today in your business. And then number two, I'd love, I'd love for you to spend a few minutes just kind of talking about some of the different ways that, you engage and approach some of the teams that you're actually working with and consulting with. And then I'd love to kind of just understand some of the different trends and some of the different themes that you're typically trying to unpack or that you're typically working with them on to help with optimization or smoothing or just general maturation as, as, as whatever, regardless of what the goals are, but spend a few minutes talking about team. Sure. Absolutely. So I've worked with a variety of different teams and companies. Um, I do strategic planning. So that's one critical area um, of really thinking about where a company needs to go, what the change in the marketplace is. But especially now in this post-COVID world that we live in, the business dynamic and, and structure that got us to where we are will not and cannot be the structure that's going to lead us into the future. Um, the extensive stakeholder demands that are placed on companies and teams today is like no time in the past. And so helping companies to figure out how to do that strategic planning and then operationalize that um, is a critical piece that I focus on, helping companies to navigate that change. Um, so that's more of an external pressure uh, that I am working with on my clients. Additionally, internally, from a team perspective, one of the areas is really focusing on change management, conflict mediation, um, management, et cetera. And so a lot of what we're also seeing today is, you know, there are mass layoffs happening. There are significant reorgs that are occurring. People are moving into all different roles. They're needing to take on more responsibilities. And that's putting a lot of pressure on teams and companies and individuals to continue to perform. And so another role that I am playing within my companies is help within my clients is helping them to navigate that helping to navigate and, and look at conflict resolution, conflict mediation. Um, I also truly believe in prevention. And so being able to, to look forward, and, and that's where a lot of my background in disaster response and conflict management come into play, is being able to help companies foresee where some of those challenges may be and preemptively address them so that those conflict areas don't her. Um, and so I'm helping work with my clients in that area as well. Um, I'm serving in fractional roles. I'm doing consulting and advising across a variety of industries, mostly in the for-profit side, um, but definitely also in nonprofit just because of my background, um, working with nonprofits and international organizations. Um, 
so there there is definitely a lot that is going on and, and team dynamics are as i mentioned are under extensive pressure um and so that that is an area i think that everybody is struggling with and if there's a few words that continue to bubble up to the surface over the you know almost 200 or so calls i've had over the past 6 months is that area of change management um, transformation and how people are really struggling to figure out how to be successful and how companies are struggling to figure out how to be profitable while addressing and managing all this change that's being pressed upon them. So many interesting points there. Um, I think the first one that I, I, I'd love to just start with, um, with a conflict, what are some of the common reoccurring, doesn't matter whether you're in insurance, doesn't matter whether you're in automotive, doesn't matter whether you're in financial, what are some of the common conflicts that many of these companies are, or that you're seeing on a regular basis, even if it's just to give us a few different examples of some of the common reoccurring items that you're, you're seeing and that you're working with your clients on? I think a first one is how to manage power dynamics within a company. Um, with the transformations that are taking place, there is a lot of struggle in terms of understanding who is going into roles and what roles that they are playing. Um, who should go into roles based on qualifications versus, at, versus some companies who are taking performative actions. Um, and so being able to understand how you put the right people into the right roles while also addressing the extensive stakeholder demands, whether it's in DEI or ESG practices. Um, so that is a significant one that I am seeing, you know, companies trying to understand and figure out, you know, how do I make sure that I have a diverse workforce? How do I make sure that I have women in executive roles or minority diverse candidates in certain roles? Um, looking at ESG principles of, you know, how am I looking at sustainability and you know, environmental practices? While at the end of the day, right? And then you and I talked about this before, they're companies and they're focused on profit, right? Yeah. That's the end of the day. It's about yeah. profit. And so how do you focus on all of these different areas while at the end of the day, they want profit metrics? Um, and so those are many of the key areas that I keep seeing bubbling up to the surface is these areas of how to continue to generate returns while trying to manage internal needs, dynamics, you know, pressures that are coming, um, whether it's through reorgs or need to diversify the work that they do or enter new marketplaces, develop new products. I love it. I think that's, I think that's number one. It, it is, it's hard. It is difficult because you're right. At the end of the day, a business is a business for a reason. It, 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 it wants to sell its services, sell its products. It wants to make a profit off the things that it builds or that it sells or that it creates. Yeah. Um, as a business gets bigger, obviously that gets more and more complex. And then certainly as you start to add thousands of people who are humans into the mix, yes. it, then it gets really hairy really quick because of just the uh, the nature of, of, of people and the nature of the complexity of managing different teams. Silos always start to form the minute that a company gets to a certain size. Honestly, not even big. A lot of the, many of the companies we work with here at CXC Standard, they're not even, they might be 100, 150 people and they've already got five different silos. And it's like, this is not that big. This is a smaller than a wedding, guys. And we're already siloed out five times. Like, that's crazy. Um, second question I have for you. You mentioned the strategic um, uh, direction setting and strategic um, just, just objectives and, and, and the way that a company needs to think about all the different things that it's going to be in front of it, right? What are some of the, um, and I know this is, this is a broad question, but are there like 
Have there been ways that you've seen some companies do a much better job and really kind of, number one, communicating what the strategy is from the top down? And then number two, creating clarity around or, or creating clarity around the areas of like accountability, responsibility, and authority around who's going to own the different items that they're putting out there as their goals or as their primary missions for a year or a quarter or whatever it might look like. I'd, I'd love to just kind of hear you talk a little bit more about that strategic direction setting. Absolutely. So one part that I think is absolutely critical is that strategic direction is not just top down, um, especially in today's world. If there is disconnect between executive leadership and what is happening on the ground with frontline individuals, the strategy will look great on paper and you won't be able to operationalize it. Um, and so I focus with my customers and my clients on understanding from a top level, which is the market side, right? Those are the macroeconomic, those are the customer directions, right? Those are the very big picture pieces. Um, but that then must be complemented by the work that is being seen and experienced by those that are have boots on the ground. Um, the people who are talking to customers daily, the people who are out in the field, the people who are actually you know, gathering the insights from, you know, from current customers, potential customers, you know, data analytics, et cetera. Um, and by marrying those two together, that's where you can have an effective strategy. Um, I think a lot of companies that I have worked with have made that mistake of only looking at the top downside. Um, and, you know, a strategy is only as good as the one that you can operationalize. Um, and so th that is a critical piece that I focus on with my customers. And I think going back to the conversation we were saying before, right, that's where a lot of the disconnect is. Um, and I've loved every customer that I have worked with in the past and every client brings a new challenge and a new, you know, dynamic to understand. But, but that's what I truly love um, is being able to tease that apart and understand how they work and how they operate and what is different about each one. Um, but because of the work that I've done, that's where I like to bring it all together to be able to say, well, you know, this company might work in a particular service, but because of certain dynamics, it's actually very similar to another one that I've done that may not appear related at all on paper. Um, but to the strategic planning perspective, being able to understand what is happening on the ground and being able to get that honest feedback and filter that up to marry it with both operation as well as financial targets is really critical. I, I literally could not agree more, Satendra. I think so much of the work that we're fortunate enough to do with our clients at CXC is exactly what you just said. It's basically like, like even our scorecard assessments, like we don't ask the executive team. We ask all the employees, right? We ask yes. the employees to rate out how they're performing across team tools, process feedback. Yeah. Uh, most of our working sessions, they're not necessarily with the CEO, the CEO, or the CFO. Don't get me wrong. There's very... Um, critical things that we need to report to them on a regular basis so that we can show them the findings, show them the learning, show them some of the deliverables that are being built. Most of the work is actually done with the boots on the ground. It's the guys and the gals that are dealing with customers every day of the day. They're inside of the CRM every single solitary day. They're inside of the taking in every single solitary day. They're feeling the product. They're feeling the service, servicing it. They're like Those are the folks that I want to personally be talking to. The other thing too is just, I say it all the time in the show, but and me and you were talking about this the other day, Senator, but like, it's it also that simple concept of, you know, EX and CX are like, they have to be married. Like, like you're not building a world-class customer experience or customer success program if you've got a bunch of people that are disengaged, misinformed, 
um, you know, not happy about showing up to work every single Saturday, uh, maybe uh, um, um, undercompensated, like no way, it's not going to happen. You're not going to be able to do that. Um, and some of the best companies on planet earth that have really kind of figured this out, those are the companies that typically have a tremendous amount of success in their industry. They are doing a fantastic job of not just customer retention, but employer retention first to equal that, that customer retention to your point about just like strategic, um, uh, vision direction and just general understanding they know where the boat is for lack of a better term they know where the ship is being steered based on where their executive leadership team is communicating so all this stuff is absolutely fantastic and i, I couldn't agree more um sandra i love to dive into the second c explorer of tools so you've you've given us all these awesome examples and all these different things that you're kind of thinking about spend a few minutes talking about tools so i know you work with a bunch of different companies in a bunch of different spaces but what what are some of the ways that you um, work with your clients' teams as it relates to the technology that they've invested in or the tools that they've invested in? And I'd love to kind of just hear some of the things that have kind of worked extremely well during your time that you've seen companies that are really kind of killing it the way that they manage their tech. And then maybe some examples of, 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 of instances when it wasn't managed really well and there wasn't a tremendous amount of clarity around how to leverage the tools or how to leverage tech. Spend a few minutes talking about tools. Absolutely. So I have both an anthropology and a Lean Six Sigma background, um, which on paper might sound like a very strange combination of skill sets. Well, that's, that's dangerous again. <laughs> <laughs> Trust me, there's a connection. But what's fascinating about it, right, is that combination of quantitative and qualitative. Um, and understand being able to look at challenges, problems, and situations from that diverse perspective. Um, and that's what I like to do when I come in to clients for the very first time, right, is looking both at the quantitative and the qualitative perspective, understanding how people work, what they do, but then what tools it is that they use to do that work, right? So there's a lot, there's this fantastic principle in cross-cultural communications about an iceberg, right? And the top third is the only piece that you see, right? Those are the defining pieces, the tools that you can touch, right? What's very definable. But two thirds of it is what you don't see, right? And that's the culture piece. That's how people, you know, interact, how decision making happens, the unspoken rules and principles. And to me, that's what's really fascinating about tools, right? Tools are a way to get work done. But if you don't understand how people work to begin with, the tool will oftentimes be unsuccessful. So I love to then be able to take that perspective of understanding how people work, how teams and departments work. What are those unspoken rules and norms that go on within a team, a department, and a company? And then mirror that and marry that with this Lean Six Sigma approach of looking at you know, the five whys and root cause problem solving, uh, you know, process stream mapping, et cetera, and be able to marry that together to understand what is the real challenge or problem that companies are trying to solve for, whether it's a problem that needs to be fixed, right? A company that I worked for was doing new client acquisition, and it took them over 30 days to be able to finalize a quote and a policy for an individual, whereas their competitors were able to do it in seven to eight days, right? So significant difference, right? And if you just look at the very top and the surface of what you think that might be the root cause of it, you're going to completely miss what the underlying issues really are. And so I think tools are a way to be able to optimize not just how, what people do, but how they do it. And so really getting to the bottom and understanding what are the underlying causes of what it is and make sure that you're solving the right problem, make sure that you're looking at the right issues 
Um, and then if you're looking at a new technology or a new tool solution, really being able to understand, again, like how is that going to fit in with all of the other ones that exist today? Um, and there is definitely right that focus on hard metrics of profit and, and you know other KPIs you may have, but there are a lot of very difficult KPIs that are hard to measure, like productivity. And if you are giving your employees, right, another tool to manage that has to then be integrated as either another screen or some more clicks, right, all of that is actually going to lead to lower productivity rather than greater productivity and greater profit. And so I think being able to focus on not just acquiring a tool as like a band-aid solution, but really understanding what is going on and how are people working together and what exists today, and then figuring out how to streamline all of that. And you might find opportunities of both process improvements as well as simplification and consolidation of tools and vendors to be able to then implement greater financial gains as well as productivity gains. I could not agree more. I think that it has become, I mean, we live in this, we live in this incredible time. Let's call it what it is. We have, there's a tool, there's a piece of technology for literally everything. Everything. Like everything you can think about almost to the point of like, uh, it's crazy at times, right? In companies, you, you absolutely, I see the exact same thing on a regular basis, but there's this almost like a draw or a yearning from some really, really bright, smart people, by the way, to want to apply a tool like every different behavior or activity that might be required that equals some form of potential success, right? And then yeah. second, I love that you brought the metrics and the KPIs into the mix. Oftentimes, they're all they're really chasing is the ability to quickly or easily or automatically, and I hate that, I hate that everybody constantly talks about this automation, so auto, automatically uh, uh, count, measure, or, or, or be able to help manage some of this stuff. But there's oftentimes not like a deeper... Um, uh, more granular review of like the why. You mentioned the five why just a second ago, but like, what what is it actually solving for? Who needs to be involved in it? What is the gain that we expect to get from it? Why do we think we need this thing in the first place? Is there another way that we might be able to do this with another tool that we've already got? We're already spending money that everybody already knows how to use. And then the last, yeah. we bring this back to like the CX and the CS land is you just now there where it's like so many uh, customer facing teams today are asked to have 27 tabs open and then they wonder why CRM utilization is low or they wonder why people don't know how to complete tickets the right type of way or they wonder why people um, have trouble writing common repeatable types of messages to customers and it's just like hello there's a bandwidth there's a bandwidth issue here and I, and I love that you're you're, you're, you're calling this out attention because like same thing with us at CC one of the first things that we do inside of some of our like tech assessments is just number one, understanding how much do we have? How many pieces of technology, how many tools? Because then we do believe that there is like a direct link to that bandwidth issue that, that I just mentioned. The other thing too is like, like anything in life, anything at all in life, if you are gonna have 27 different goals, you're probably not gonna accomplish one of them. If you have <laughs> one or two goals, you're gonna definitely accomplish it. If you have two or three goals, you're probably going to get one or two of them. And then maybe that third one, you're going to be making progress on it. It might take longer. It might take more time to get to it. But if you have two or three goals instead of 27, you're probably going to get you done. You're probably going to re really kind of knock it out of the park with at least the big ones you put out. And it's the same thing in these business landscapes, which is like, 
why are we introducing or exposing some of our employees to all of these different things when in reality they only need one or two or three primary things that they need to know and then on top of it allow them to master or or at least at least at, at least achieve some level of expectation around feeling really good about what they can use um, nobody wants to show up to their job and do a shitty job. Nobody wants everybody. Most humans, most good humans want to show up and do a really good job. They want to know that they're meeting expectations. They want to know that they're exceeding expectations. And with technology, I think as much as I absolutely love it, it's we, we're in this interesting time where it's like you just keep whipping out another another piece of SaaS or whipping out another, you know, uh, another another app that's going to make something easier. And oftentimes it's like simplifying can really, really make a huge difference. And then focus is just one of the things that we're constantly talking about with our clients when it comes to like tech optimization and tech or increasing utilization rates of specific pieces of technology. So um, I love that. Um, Stater, you started to Just, just one small yeah, piece yeah. to add into that one as well is um, I think SaaS is fantastic, right? Like there are lots of SaaS solutions that are out there. The challenge with a lot of the SaaS solutions from a company perspective is that because of the cheaper subscription model methodology, those decision makers within companies, the price tag is so much lower than if you purchase a larger, more complete set of solutions that it's easier to buy a whole bunch of smaller and cheaper individual pieces of software that don't necessarily all integrate or speak with each other, right? And you're talking about like the 27 tabs, right? If five of those or seven of those are all different types of solutions, sure, it's going to be cheaper, which means your profitability is going to be higher. But the fact that they don't talk to each other is going to make it much much more difficult from an implementation operational perspective. And the other challenge as well, right, when you're talking about people is onboarding, right? So when you're looking at bringing, you know, to your comment on EX and CX, right? If you're trying to bring new people into the company, how do you make it as simple as possible? And if you're having to teach them how to use, you know, a dozen different types of software across multiple tabs, right? Your onboarding period of time is much longer, which at the end of the day means you're actually going to be spending more time to just get people up to speed than being able to have them be productive at a very short period of time. Big time. I, I honestly, a lot of the living playbook curation that we do with our clients, it's literally because of what you just said, meaning like we'll, we'll, we'll work with our champion. We'll identify the 17 tools that they have. We'll literally struggle to get definitions on 80% of them, frankly, even from the champion, even from the project champion. And then basically what we, what we end up doing is we spend a ton of time, energy, work, getting the answer so that at least there's a high level when in reality there's probably only 20% of those tools that everybody really needs to know about. And you could probably omit the other 80. And then again, it's everything you're talking about. Last thing, I love that you brought up the stitching and the integration and the aggregation of the stuff. One of the biggest challenges that we see most of our prospects and clients when they come, when they're they're looking for ways of improving their VOC reporting or the voice of customer reporting, it's exactly what you just said, September. It's like, because there's 17 things, now we have 17 different data sets. And then again, until you get to a certain level of maturity as a business, and let's call it what it is, oftentimes this is way later down the road. This is to, you need to be over 20, 30, sometimes even over $50 million annual to be able to have data scientists, anal- analysts that actually understand how to work with sales, support, ops, to be able to stitch this stuff together for somebody to be able to come in and tell a story about what the data is actually saying. And when you're small, man, if you can like, one of the biggest differentiations, if you keep all of your information in one or two spots and, it, and it's connected in a box, you can democratize that data very easily. And if you have a small team, whether it's 10, 20, 50 people, 
everybody can kind of understand what the drum beat or the pulse of the customer is. Everyone can understand what the drum beat or the pulse of the deals or the sales or the, or the accounts are. And then if you're a product, everybody can kind of get a sense for what people love about it, what people don't like about it, what maybe you need to do more of, what you need to do less of. So all, all incredible ideas here. Um, so Tanner, I want to dive into the third CX pillar of process because you, you started to bring us there a second ago. Um, I, I mean, we could take this so many different ways, but when I when I when I ask people this question, I'm thinking about. I mean, I, number one, I just love that everybody kind of answers it very differently. But I'd love to understand sort of how along your travels, literally along your travels, um, and and along all of your the different clients and all the different businesses you are a part of helping to lead. Spend a few minutes talking about some of the things that you think have worked really, really well for not just managing process or regulating process, but I'd love to get some ideas or some tips or tricks from our listeners from you around things that worked really well for either building out your playbooks or managing your standard operating procedures, or you mentioned KPIs and metrics a little while ago. Spend a few minutes talking about process. What are some of the things that you kind of learned along your own travels? Absolutely. So first of all, I'm a process nerd. Um, I I find process and efficiency. I mean, in like every possible area of my life that I can, um, including like how my kitchen is laid out. And I'm not joking. Um, so I I love and live by process efficiency. Um, I think to me, the first part of it to really understand is that people piece of it, right? Like there are some processes that work incredibly well for some organizations and you try to copy and paste it somewhere else and it will utterly fail. And so understanding to me, again, like this is where a lot of my diagnostic triage piece comes in, right? Is understanding the interplay between teams and departments you know, before I think about what the current process is. What I love to do as well is really be able to map out the current state process, right? So a lot of times it's not documented, um, you know, depending on what the size or the scope of, of that process is, but understanding how things work today, right? Overlaying that with time periods, right? Like how long does it take to go from step one to step two, right? Um, is there a complexity area, right? Do you have high complexity, medium complexity, or low complexity, or you know some other you know indicator? Um, and overlaying all of those and piecing it together as it currently exists to then be able to understand and find where the inefficiencies and the waste happen, right? Where are there too many handoffs? Where are there delays, right? Where are there bottlenecks? Um, overlaying that with value stream mapping, right? All this nerdy stuff I can yeah. do. Um, but to me, simplicity in everything is key, right? Just, just like with tools, right? Simplicity. So understanding what is the fastest and most efficient way to get from point A to point B, right? And like bringing it back the conversation of strategy. If you have a very clear sense of what you are trying to achieve, right? What does the end goal look like? What does success look like? look like? What is it that you want to produce at the end of the day? And understanding what it takes to go into that, right? And not just holding yourself beholden to current state, but thinking about how is the most efficient way of doing that. Um, moving work around, moving teams around, and then as a last step measure, thinking about what tools you need to do that. Um, and so it, those are the general steps that I use to go through the process piece of it. Um, I mean, I, I don't think that there's necessarily like 
a best model and it's very specific, right? If you're talking about insurance underwriting, there are certainly very structured steps you need or you want to follow and regulatory pieces. But um, I think it's more about that approach, right? Of, of making sure you're following a clear approach to be able to get to what the most efficient process is. And if you're not talking to the right people and you're not collecting the right information, at the end of the day, the process that you design is going to have gaps in it. And so, um, and not every day you need to have, you know, the super sophisticated off the shelf SaaS solution, right? Sometimes a very simple word document checklist is all you need to solve the problem. Um, And so, you know, but understanding those pieces of who's doing the work, how long should it take? What tools do they need to get it done? Where are the bottlenecks and current existing processes? Those really, to me, are the critical pieces to get to, you know, the building of the optimal process for whatever that team department or task is. I I love that. I I, I mean, one of the the biggest reasons why we start most of our engagements at CXC with a journey map, and and it's funny, some people, like, I can literally... There's been more than one time when I can see the faces and see the eyes rolling when they see me and my team show up. We're like, all right, guys, we're customer journey mapping today. And look, two things. Number one, do you have one? Yes or no? If you do, great, good. We can start there. We can, to your point, at least there is something that is mapped, documented, and chronicled that we can to like unpack and we can begin to poke holes on. We can begin to ask questions about. We can begin to overlay things on top of. If the answer is no, then we do get to start there because uh, for for a variety of reasons. And I'm not I'm not I'm not going to make this a, a customer journey mapping. Uh, you know, like 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 uh, shout out fest here, but like basically, it's exactly what you just said. It's 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 taking the time to map. Uh, it's defining all of these intricate things across different parts of the journey. It's highlighting touch points. It's highlighting tools. It's highlighting teams that are are interwoven into this stuff. It's highlighting uh, counts, measures, or data that we do have or that we don't have. Because if we do, great, awesome. If we don't, well, there you go. That's those are some easy CPAs right there. And then there's two other pieces though that we that we always do with our CXC journey maps. We do our common customer consternation and friction points, and then we do our common employee consternation and friction points. And the big reason why is more often than not, the two very much speak to each other, and you can literally start to pluck out weird. Hold on, weird. So, executive team, the same thing that bothers your employees seems to be bothering your your customers. Maybe we should talk about that. I don't know. And then again, to your point, obviously, it's got to fit into profits first and all that stuff. So, you got to, it's never an easy task, and it always is a million conversations to get to something that you think would be really, really easy. But the, the bottom line is it just, it serves as such a great way of laying, I, I call it like dumping the puzzle pieces on the table, right? If an organization doesn't have that, you can dump the, dump the puzzle pieces on the table, at least you have shapes and colors sorted out. It, I'm not saying that you're figuring out all your, all your problems by doing this, not at all is what I'm saying. If anything, it's literally the beginning of the journey. It's like almost like building a potential map to getting to where you want to go. Um, but here's the other thing that I find. The discussion, especially the more of these that I've done, the longer that I've done, this type of work and the, the more um, uh, the, the more teams that we've worked with, it's definitely the working session and it's definitely the value comes from the conversation, the debate, the banter, the push, the pull, um, and the buy-in and the not buy-in that you hear from the teams that are actually orchestrating and, 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 and building, them, right? And so to your point, like with process, it's like 
people might not think it's sexy, but it very much becomes the glue that holds so many things together, or it becomes the North Star, it becomes a way that it, 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 that people understand what expectations are, and the people can actually point to something, refer to something, and they sort of understand what the answer is for today. And then the other last thing is this, it's always changing, right? So controlling and monitoring is always a part of the business. Someone someone in the business always needs to be thinking about controlling and monitoring. I would argue most growth-focused companies are horrible at this. I think it's they're so focused on you know, looking in front, go speeding down the highway, 70, 75 miles an hour, 80 miles an hour, 100 miles an hour. And that's cool. I love that. I promise you, I, that's why I spent most of my career in, 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 in the venture capital back world. But like looking behind you also, it does, it does help from time to time. I'm not saying everybody in your organization should, but I do know that like having some knighted individuals that are thinking about that controlling, monitoring, optimization, refinement, socialization of whatever the hell you just figured out you need to kind of button up or tighten up. That's super, super important, especially as the business grows. I 100% agree. And, and I was going to add to that as well, that to me, I think what's really important are two pieces. One, to you need an objective outside view to, for someone to help to understand it and pull it together. Um, not because a company should be spending more money on consultants. Um, yep. And I'm not saying this needs to be a multi-million dollar engagement, but having an objective outsider view who can ask the questions and drill down into why things are happening and where things are going without being, you know, the person who's working day in and day out of the company makes a huge, huge difference. Yep. Um, I mean, there's a reason and, and you know, change management is, you know, like conflict management in many ways, right? And, you know, there's a reason why there are, peace, you know, conflict negotiators who come in to mediate between, between individuals or companies or countries. Um, and so I think having an outsider objective perspective is critical to success because you also are taking power dynamics out of the equation, right? You're understanding truly what happens when and by whom, and you can objectively figure out what is the best way to make it happen and provide options and proposals um, without having, you know, those individual stakeholder, you know, needs, you know, as a core component of, of why things happen. The other piece that I always do at the end of my engagements, or I should say within the scope of doing the engagement is after that current state process or after that current state mapping and engagement piece, I like to physically show everyone what it looks like. Most cases, regardless of what people think of the process is, or regardless of what you know existing process maps exist, when reality comes and you've completed these exercises, what the map actually looks like is very different than what people think it yep. is. Yep. And so being able to actually show it where everyone involved from executive leaders all the way down to frontline can actually look and see step mm -hmm. by step. Yep. And, you know, where are the bottlenecks and where are the inefficiencies and who is doing what is such an eye-opening experience to me. It reduces so much of the need to then explain why change needs to happen um, it, because people are seeing it. They can tangibly see it and touch it. Um, and they're able to see, like, where their role is in the equation as well. Um, and when it comes to that customer and employee piece of it, being able to overlay that and understand how you can then drive that efficiency to deliver greater service and product to your customer makes it a no-brainer. Um, and so it's it's always fun to see what they look like at the end and then be able to, you know, pull out the, those problem areas, challenge areas, and figure out how to map that going forward. 100% agree. 
Um, Sandra, this has been fantastic. Um, I want to jump into the fourth and the final uh, pillar of, of feedback. I'd love to hear you spend a couple of minutes just kind of talking about if there is like two or three ways that are two or three major um, things that you've really kind of tried to hone in on over the years with all the different businesses and all the different teams that you've worked with around feedback. Mm-hmm. What, were like the, what are like the top two or three tips you have for our listeners around how they can get really, really good at understanding how to better listen to their customers and how to better listen to their teammates? So one piece to me that's critical is how you ask the question. Um, open Asking open-ended questions will certainly garner greater responses and from an analytics perspective than understanding how you convert that qualitative information into discernible metrics and insights. Um, that to me is really critical. Um, and I, there have been so many surveys that I have seen and I have responded to where the answers are so closed, you're not actually getting honest feedback, right? Because the perspective that you are bringing into it is from your own biased per- perspective. And so understanding how to design the proper surveys or questionnaires or feedback requests, right? Whatever that is, to me, is the starting point um, to really make sure that you're getting information that is going to inform what you do going forward. Um, I think obviously, you know, anonymity is also critical piece, um, especially when you're talking about very contentious issues, Um, making sure that it's being designed in a way that people can be honest and responsive in an easy and a fast way and making sure that they're going to be protected along the way that, you know, it can't be tied back. Um, But the other piece that's, I think, oftentimes missed is feedback is requested and then no action is taken. Um, And there is oftentimes, um, you know, there are a lot of mottos and I worked in the international development field of, you know, don't create an expectation that you cannot meet. And so if you're asking for feedback, you need to be prepared to then follow on and take action based on what you hear. Don't request feedback and then put it on a shelf or only hold it to certain individuals. Um, Anyone who is requested to respond should be people who see what the results are could not could not agree more don't 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 even bother asking if you're not going to do something with it and then i would I, as i've gotten deeper into my journey with this stuff sandra don't even bother asking for it if you don't have somebody in the business who knows how to actually assess it so that you can even understand how to act upon it yes. um, and so many vc back growth companies make this mistake on a regular basis the other thing too is just like uh, i love your, your your point about what questions are asked the reason why people hate surveys is because most of them suck. Call it what it is. Sorry, guys out there who are running your NPS and running your CSAT and running your products. I'd be like, this is why your response rates are terrible. And this is why people don't want to answer these things anymore. Um, I, I know one of the big things that we do at CXC, Sandra, we push our clients to pick up the phone and talk to somebody. Talk to a human. Call somebody. Five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes. They want to give you more than 15 minutes? Brilliant. Even better. That means you probably have a really engaged, probably already promoter if they're going to say, take 15 minutes of their, of their busy day to do it. But um, what about um, on the employee side? I think the uh, last question is just like, is there been anything that you've seen certain companies do extremely well as far as soliciting their employee feedback to drive change and, or, or, or that you've just been really impressed by in terms of the way that they actually take the time and make the investment to get employee feedback that they can kind of spin into the mix? Or is that still something that people like me and you are going to be bringing into the future? <laughs> I think there's a lot of opportunity for improvement. Um, I think also 
especially on the employee side, having a neutral third party soliciting the feedback is critically important. I've seen time and time again in companies where even if that statement of anonymity is provided, employees don't want to respond because there's even this sense that technology can track what I have submitted. So if somebody really wants to find out, they can. Um, And employees don't want to respond, especially with really negative or honest feedback, if there's even the remotest of senses that it can be tied back to them. And so having a neutral outside third party be able to collect that information and analyze it and then be able to provide that analytics back to the company, I think is critically important. Um, And to the employee and customer piece of it, right? if you're not looking at your employees as potential customers, there is a major loss in your company's strategic design. Um, Your best voice of customer is going to be from the employees who are working there. and so if you really want to be able to focus on, you know, voice of customer and employee experience, look at them as one of the same. Um, that That is a huge piece of, of experience and feedback in general that, that I have acquired through working with my variety of customers. I love it. Well, Satandra Hoover, this has been absolutely fantastic. Number one, thank you so much for taking the time to join the CX Chronicles podcast. Thank you so much for all of the incredible wisdom and insights, uh, calls to action that you gave us today. This is fantastic. Um, before I let you go, anything else you want to shout out? Anything that you want the CX Nation to know about? Anything? Where can people get in touch with you and where can people find out more about you? Absolutely. So best way to get in touch with me is through LinkedIn, Um, you know, common form of communication for these days. Um, I have a very difficult to spell first name, so it's much easier than trying to provide my email. Um, But, you know, LinkedIn, and I love to hear from people. I thrive on, you know, understanding and uncovering, you know, problems and solutions as complex as it may seem. Um, And it's just been such a pleasure being able to speak with you today, Adrienne, and and be able to be here in touch with your audience and be able to dive down more into these topics. And I think overall, to me, as scary as the world today may seem, it's incredibly exciting as well. And so much opportunity is available for every individual to help to influence what the future looks like. Um, And by all of us coming together and looking at these problems from more of a Venn diagram than a siloed perspective is going to solve some incredible problems that we're all faced with today. Couldn't agree more. So, Tim, thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure. You too, Adrian. Thank you so much. Talk to you later. Thank you for listening to another episode of the CX Chronicles podcast. We're thrilled to have you as a part of the CX Nation, tuning into customer-focused business leaders from across the world. Be sure to check out the CXC website, and as always, find us on any of your favorite podcast players, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and more. Thanks so much for making this show a reality and being a part of the CX Nation. And as always, folks, remember to make happiness a habit.